a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. If you'd like to open it, uh, Romans chapter 1, I think the verses are going to appear uh, on the screen behind us if you haven't got a Bible with you. Um, Just going to read a a couple of verses, um, three verses I think. Romans chapter 1, Paul's letter uh, to the church in uh, in Rome. Romans chapter 1 and verse 14. I'm reading from the NIV. Um, One or two words are slightly different in uh, ESV and other translations. But uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 14. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Going to leave it there, just stick to those three uh, verses. Obviously verse 17 is a... A wonderful verse in itself, but if I included that, we'd be here far too long this morning. Um, so, um, let's put that up there. Um, I want to ask you a question uh, this morning. Uh, is there anybody here who wants to see Jubilee Church uh, Derby grow into a big church in the city? Oh, good. That's good. Sort of a few tentative yeses there, a few hands raised. That's uh, great. Is there anybody here who wants to make Jesus famous in this town, this city? Not quite so sure about that one. (laughs) Okay. Anybody here want to make it difficult for people to go to hell from Derby? (laughs) Okay. A few laughs there. Okay. Um, If any of those things are going to happen... Any of those things are going to happen, and a lot more things as well. It's really important, it's crucial that you uh, develop both personally, individually, and corporately as a church an understanding of the gospel, an understanding of your present relationship now with the gospel that saved you, or maybe has not saved you yet, and also that you grow in your confidence in the gospel. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Your understanding, your present relationship to the gospel that Paul speaks about so many times in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. He keeps going on about the gospel. It's crucial, it's vital that we understand our relationship to the gospel and we grow in confidence in the gospel. Now I know some of you are already switching off. Because even though I haven't mentioned the word, you know that I'm going to be speaking about the dreaded E word. Okay, evangelism. There, I'll mention it. I'll put it out there. And some of you are already dialing down. You're switching off because you're thinking, oh no, it's evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. That's not my gifting. That's not my bag. That's not my scene. It's not what I do. That's what so-and-so does in the church. You know, there'll be one or two here, and all of you, if I said, who's the evangelist around here, you'll always point to that crazy guy or the strange lady over there, the evangelist, whatever. And most of you are thinking, oh, this is for them. They'll be really enjoy this. I'm just going to have a break for the next half an hour, get the mobile out, send a few text messages or whatever. Can I plead to you, this is for all of us. It's for every 
single one of us, as I'll show you this morning. Because we have this sort of tendency to put people like the evangelist up on a pedestal or something or other as being this weird, strange person, much as we can do with the Apostle Paul. You see, in these opening verses, just those verses that I've just read there, Paul makes these strong personal statements about uh, the gospel. If you look at verse 14, he says in the NIV, he says, I am bound. In the ESV, it says, I am under obligation, yeah, to preach the gospel is what he's talking about. In verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel. And then in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He makes these really strong personal commitment statements about the gospel and his relationship and his desire to preach the gospel. And the danger is that we can say, okay, well, that's Paul. You know, he was an apostle. He was a great apostle. He was you know, passionate. He was this big man of God. Um, there's no wonder he makes these statements, but you can't possibly apply that to little old me here in Derby. Well, I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to. You see, because think about it for a moment. Paul, I would contend, has got just as many reasons to uh, feel reluctant about preaching the gospel, just as many reasons to be embarrassed about the gospel, to back off from the gospel, as you have. Paul, after all, is writing here to the church in Rome. Um, At that stage, probably not a very big church, Paul had never been there, but Rome, 2,000 years ago, was the capital of the ancient world. It was the place to go. It was this great imperial city, the centre of the civilised world, the centre of the Roman Empire, the very symbol of imperial power and prestige. People spoke in awe of Rome. You know, it was a a wonder. It was a majesty. Everybody hoped to visit Rome. Everybody hoped to go to Rome at least once in their lifetime, just to be able to walk about and stare in awesome wonder at the buildings and the majesty and the grandeur. It's a bit like me walking around Derby this morning trying to find this place, you know, thinking, wow, you know, well, maybe not quite. But... And yet, Paul, who was this fella Paul, who wanted to come to Rome, not as some sort of awe-inspired tourist, but as an evangelist. What made Paul believe that he could go and transform the city of Rome um, with the gospel? What, you know, some people would have said, reading his letter back then, people would not have thought, yeah, it's just Paul. They would have thought, what arrogance, what What folly to go and think he could do that. You see, we tend to put Paul on a pedestal. But if you read all the various commentators about this man, Paul, you actually found out that he wasn't, well, how do I put it? He certainly wasn't the Tom Cruise of his day. Let's put it like that, okay? If you read the various commentators and what people, scriptures and the traditions, what we know about him, various people, these are some of the things I read about Paul, they described him as having beetle brows. I don't know what beetle brows are, big bushy eyebrows or something, or I don't know. Described as having bandy legs, uh, a bald head, a hooked nose, and bad eyesight. Um, you know, anybody here fit that description? 
Sorry, Graham, I wasn't meaning to look at you then. But um, neither, neither was he considered, actually, to be a very good speaker. Paul, it's generally held that he wasn't considered to be a great speaker. So what could this guy Paul possibly think that he could do by going to Rome? You know, this amazing city and this pretty insignificant, not a great specimen of a human being, what did he think he could possibly do? Wouldn't it be a bit better for him just to sort of visit the church quietly, you know, and sort of go in and uh, maybe give them a few sort of messages to build up their encouragement and faith and then just sort of get on his way again? No, that's not what Paul says at all. He's saying, no, I'm bound to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why was that? It's because Paul had got a clear understanding of the gospel. And his eyes were fixed on the gospel, not himself. And we can apply this to ourselves. Our problem is, a lot of the time, that we're so... Um, lacking in confidence about ourselves because we're focused so much on ourselves, yeah? Whereas God wants us to get us our eyes on the gospel. And if we're going to see this, this city won for Christ, Jesus become famous in this city. If we want to see every seat in this place full so that people are queuing in to come out the doors, yeah? We've got to get our eyes fixed on the gospel, not on ourselves. It's the gospel that counts. Now, what was the basis of Paul's confidence? We're going to actually look at that, but we're going to look at that and apply it to ourselves. You see, when Paul is talking here about his forthcoming visit to Rome, it's not just that he's giving us a sort of autobiographical account of how he was feeling then. Actually, there's as much theology and doctrine in these verses as anywhere else where Paul writes. So we can look at the reasons why Paul was confident in the gospel and we can apply them to ourselves because it's the same gospel. The gospel has not changed in 2,000 years. It's exactly the same. So whatever it was that made Paul confident in the gospel, if we get our understanding of that fixed and our eyes fixed on that, then we can grow in confidence in the gospel as well. Now, Don't worry, I'm not trying to turn you all into apostles, (laughs) okay? This is not that we're all going to become apostles or that we've all got to become evangelists or we've even all got to go on missionary journeys over the seas or something like that. No, but it's about being confident in the gospel in our world, in our day. Wherever we are, at whatever time, we can look at what made Paul confident in the gospel, apply that to ourselves and see the fruit of the gospel in our own lives. In other words, Paul's reasons for being so raw about the gospel have got to become our reasons as well. Paul's confidence in the gospel has got to become our confidence. Paul's eagerness needs to become our eagerness. So, what's the basis of Paul's confidence in the gospel? We've got two, two reasons. The first one is this. We need to understand our relationship to the gospel now. And our relationship, or certainly one aspect of our relationship to the gospel now, that Paul talks about here is this. The gospel is a debt to the world. A debt to the world. We must understand 
that one of the aspects of our relationship to the gospel now is, it's, is that it's a debt to the world. Now let's just think about that uh, a little bit. Verse 14, Paul says, I am bound. Okay, in the ESV, he says, I'm under obligation. Now it should literally be translated, I am a debtor. D-E-B-T-O-R, a debtor. I'm in debt. The Greek word is ophilio, and it means to be in debt. So what Paul is saying is that he's in debt to the world. He says, I am in debt, both to Greeks and non-Greeks. That's everybody. That was his way of saying the whole world. I'm in debt, okay, to the world. Um, He's under obligation to preach the gospel. He's in debt. He's a debtor to the world. And the only way that he can relieve himself of this obligation, this debt, is to preach the gospel to this world. Now, now why is it? Why did he see the gospel in that way? Um, well, there's two ways that a person, that you can get into debt. Okay? The first is to borrow money from someone. The second is to be given money for someone else. So, uh, Graham, have you got your wallet? You hear that? He's got his wallet. This is good. Has anybody ever seen Graham? Graham's going to get his wallet out. Okay, got any notes in there? One. One. <laughs> is it a 20? It's a 10. It's a 10. Okay, Graham, I'm really, really struggling this week. I'm a bit strapped for cash. So I'd really love it, mate, if you could sort of lend me a tenner. Is that all right? Wow, I trust in something. Um, okay. Graham, out of the kindness and the goodness of his heart, has now given me a tenner, okay? Oh, sorry, he's lent me a tenner. <laughs> sorry, slight slip of the tongue there. He's lent me a tenner. Um, so, what we could now say is that I am in debt to Graham, okay? I owe him something. He's given something to me, and I think he wants it back. Until I actually give it back to him... I'm in debt to him. I owe him the tenor, if you like. Now, let's give you that back for a moment. Now, let's suppose... Dave, isn't it? Dave looks like a man who might need a tenor or two. Sorry. But (laughs) let's imagine Dave is the... Don't put it away. We haven't finished yet. Uh, He's so eager to get that back in his wallet. Uh, Let's suppose Dave is the guy that is, is really in debt, okay? So Graham says to me, Steve... Here's a tenner, and I want you to go and give that to Dave, because Dave really needs that tenner. He's in a bit of a state, in a desperate way. He's nodding profusely there. He's really desperately in need of this tenner. Now, what has happened now? What has happened now? It's slightly different, because I'm no longer in debt to Graham, but actually, I'm in debt to him, to Dave. Because I've got the tenor that is actually his. It's left Graham, and Graham's intention is that that's where it ends up with Dave. I'm just the, the carrier. I'm just the guy who gets to feel it, and I can't, it's not mine. I can't go and spend it or whatever. I'm in debt now to Dave. And until I actually dispose of my debt and give this sort of tenor uh, to Dave, okay, I discharge my obligation. And once I've given him the tenor, I've relieved my debt. I'll hold him, Dave. You go now. Okay. 
I think you might get that back later on. I'm not sure though, but anyway. <laughs> now, do you see the difference in those two examples? And it's the second case in which Paul is saying, I am in debt. I'm in debt. It's, the, it's that second example. He's not, it's not that Paul has borrowed anything from the Romans. When Paul says, I'm in debt to the Romans and in debt to the Greeks, to the non-Greeks, it's not that he's, he's borrowed something from them. What it is, is that Jesus Christ has entrusted him with something for them. Jesus Christ has given him something that Jesus wants delivered to them. And that something is the gospel. It's the gospel. Jesus has given Paul the gospel to be delivered to them. And that's why he says, I'm in debt. I'm under obligation. I've got this thing I've been given. And I've got to discharge this responsibility. Now, all analogies, applications, they all fall short. The £10 note one falls short in that obviously, when Jesus Christ revealed himself to the Apostle Paul, the gospel was for Paul. It saved him. We'll see that in a, in, in a moment. It, it, it had application for Paul. So the, the analogy of the £10 note sort of falls short a little bit um, because it was for Paul. But the thing was, Paul knew that it wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for him. It was for Paul, yeah, but it was for everybody else as well. It was for the Romans, it was for the Greeks, it was for the non-Greeks, not just for him. The gospel was not for him alone. Paul knew that everybody was in need of the gospel. And Paul knew he'd been given this wonderful, wonderful treasure, unique commission, actually, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't just for him. He saw the gospel as something wonderful, precious, treasure. This wonderful thing that had been given to him for the Gentiles. Something to be received for him, but also to be given away to others. You know, right at his very conversion on the Damascus Road, um, God made it very clear to him that that was to be the case. Paul, this is not just for you I'm going to make you an apostle to the Gentiles. The gospel for Paul was never ever something that was private, something that was just for him, something that was secret. It was something that was public and universal for the whole world. He saw the gospel as something precious that actually had been entrusted to him. That is how he saw it. It was something that had been entrusted to him. And several times when Paul... He's writing to the various churches that he cared for. He, he uses that term of being entrusted, of having been put in trust with the gospel. So when he's writing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, he says this. So, then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Paul and his team, he, he saw himself and his team as people who had been entrusted with these things of God but not for themselves, but to be given out to the whole world. When he's writing to the church in Galatia, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, it, it says, um, they, that's the apostles, he was visiting the apostles in Jerusalem, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. When he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted 
with the gospel. When he speaks to his protege, Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, he says, he speaks to Timothy about the glorious gospel of the blessed God entrusted to me. And he speaks to Titus, Titus 1 verse 3, the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. God had given Paul the gospel and he'd entrusted the gospel to Paul for the world, for the Gentiles, including those in Rome. Jesus Christ had made Paul a debtor by committing the gospel to his trust. He was in debt to the Gentiles. He was in debt to the Romans because he had not yet preached the good news of Jesus Christ to them. Okay, so he writes, I'm under obligation. I'm bound. I'm in debt. That's why when he's writing to the Corinthians on another uh, occasion, 1 Corinthians 9, he says this, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot preach, sorry, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. (laughs) I love that. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This sense of being under obligation, this sense of having a duty to discharge a debt, was so such a thing with him that he says, woe to me. He felt it if he didn't preach the gospel. He felt the weight of the obligation he was under of this wonderful treasure that God had given him for other people. And if he didn't preach the gospel, it weighed on him. So it was woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's under a compulsion to preach the gospel. He was eager to preach the gospel because he was in debt. He's got a debt to clear, a duty to discharge, and he feels the weight of it urging him on. And you know, I believe God wants us to feel the same, the the same weight of that. The gospel that we have been given is the same gospel. It's the same treasure. It's not that the Apostle Paul was given a sort of slightly superior uh, version of the gospel, that was the one for other people, the rest of the world, and we've just got the sort of like ordinary gospel that is just for us. No, the same gospel has come to us. It's the same good news that has come to us. And we need to understand much more our present relationship to the gospel. The danger is that we think, Yeah, I'm saved. The gospel saved me. What a wonderful, wonderful thing the gospel is. Yeah, I'm saved by grace. It's wonderful, this freedom that I now stand in. What a wonderful gospel. And now I can go on and live my life. And somehow we sort of think, well, that's the end of the gospel. No, it's not. No. Our present relationship to the gospel is that the gospel is something that has saved us, is still saving us and will save us when Jesus comes again completely. But our present relation to the gospel is that it's something that we've got to give to other people. And it's not just an optional extra. It's implicit and intrinsic to the gospel. It's a treasure that is not just for me, but it's for everyone else. It's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I've got to share it. We've got an obligation, if you like, to discharge it. It's not, it doesn't matter that none of us here are apostles. It doesn't matter of, that none of us here, or not many of us here, are preachers. It doesn't matter that you're not an evangelist. It's not about being an evangelist. Actually, an evangelist is just the person who equips the church to do evangelism. <laughs> the evangelist is not the person who just preaches the gospel. The evangelist is the person who comes to the church to equip the church to be gospel people. 
If the gospel has come to us, which it has, if you've been saved by this glorious good news of the gospel, then really you've got no right to keep it to yourselves. And actually, you know, to get heavy for a moment, if you're keeping the most wonderful, beautiful thing that you've ever found to yourself, isn't that just a bit selfish? <laughs> you know? Let's suppose, uh, let's suppose Dave there came out of his period of debt and poverty and whatever, and he uh, won the lottery or something or other, or I don't know. He came into millions of pounds, you know. Um, if Dave, sort of like with his newfound wealth, if he didn't sort of give any of that to people in his family or some of his mates or give some of it away to charity or maybe bless the church. Graham's eyes are twinkling now. Um, You know, if he didn't use it in that sort of way, but if he just kept it all to himself, this wonderful treasure that he'd been given, you know, stuck it in a high security interest account or something or other and just sort of gloried over his monthly bank statements, you know, how it was going up and up and up. If he did that with that treasure... Wouldn't we start to talk about him and think, that's been a bit selfish, isn't it? We would, wouldn't we? Would we? Yeah, we would. We'd think, that's been a bit selfish. But actually, what Dave has found in the gospel is far more important than millions of pounds. It's far more wonderful. It's a far bigger treasure. So actually, for Dave to keep that treasure to himself and not share that with people and give that out, I think that could be said to be being selfish. Now, I I, I don't want to upset anyone here. So who's this guy, Graham, you've invited in? He's telling me I'm selfish. But, you know, so often we just think, yeah, I'm saved, and yeah, I'm part of the church, and I'm going on with God, and and so on and so forth. And, yeah, there's these strange people who go out telling people about Jesus, but that's not me and and whatever. Um, and people like me sort of come in and try and persuade and encourage you that you can speak a little bit and so on and so forth. Listen, it's not just for you. <laughs> the gospel that saves you is not just for you. It's for the people out there. It's for the people that you live with, your family. It's for the people you live near to, your neighbours. It's for the people you work with. It's for the people you study with. It's for your friends, your colleagues the people you play sport with or do whatever you do with, it's for them as well. It's for anybody you come into contact with who doesn't have any of that treasure. You've got this wonderful, wonderful treasure. And we need to understand our relationship to that. So it becomes a bit of a, uh, woe to me. Woe to me if over the pint I'm going to have with my mate tomorrow night that I can't say something to him about the difference God has has made in my life. Woe to me if at the mums and tots group next week when I'm sat with my friend, if I can't just say something about the difference my life has has been since I found God. Woe to me if I'm not able to invite at least one person to our service and speak to them about how wonderful it is to be part of this church. Woe to me. You might not use that phrase, (laughs) you know, but, but... Feel the weight and the burden of that. Now look, 
I'm a leader, well, I'm not a leader of the church at the moment. I've passed it over. Uh, and we haven't got a new one yet, but we will have. But I was going to say, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a leader of a church. Um, and if I put my pastor's hat on, yeah, and be all nice and gentle and, and, and sort of encouraging, whatever, you know, I, I, I know that it's not easy to share your faith sometimes. I know that. I know sometimes you haven't even got anybody to invite uh, to things. I know you've got to take it gently with people. I know that they're probably going to get a bit spooked if you go all religious on them. I know that maybe some of your friends don't even know that you're a Christian. As a pastor, I can sort of be caring and gentle and come at it from that point of view. But in the spirit of these verses, I want to ask you right now, this morning, are you eager to discharge your debt to the world, to your friends? Paul was eager. He was eager. Because if Paul describes his relationship to the gospel in these terms, then we ought to describe it and feel it in the same sort of terms. Do you feel the obligation of sharing the good news? It's not just an option, actually. It's much more of an obligation. Let's not think of an optional extra that we might do one day when we pluck up enough courage and we've learnt enough. Let's not look at it as an option. Let's look at it more as an obligation. It's something that is just part of what it means to be a Christian, to tell people about it. I want to ask you, does your life demonstrate the the sense of responsibility to share the wonderful treasure that has come your way? Because if, if Paul felt responsible for the salvation of people in Rome in his day, then speaking for me, I know that God wants me to feel responsible for the salvation of people in York or Huddersfield or Barnsley or Wakefield or wherever else. And I'm sure God wants you to feel a responsibility for the salvation of people in the city, in Derby. Now I know, because I preach it, it's not about what you do, it's what God does. You can't save anybody. It's God who does the saving, but he has chosen to use us in the, the progress of people getting saved. And I think God wants us to take up that responsibility. And around New Frontiers, this is what we're doing in these days. We're saying, hey, it's, it's not, it's, you know, we can't just look anymore and look at Huddersfield and say, well, yeah, there's some great churches there. There are actually, there's a church of about a thousand people who've just opened their 15 million pound building. Um, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I'd owed 15 million pounds, but that's what they've done. It's a great church. There are other good churches there. And maybe in the Pastors of New Frontiers, we've thought, well, that's great. You know, they're, they're responsible for that. We'll, we'll just get on with it here. We're saying, no, we've got to take up our responsibility for the salvation of this nation. We've got to take up responsibility for preaching the gospel in every town and city. We're not just going to say, that's their patch anymore. We're going to go with them. We're going to stand with them. And that's why what I'm doing at the moment is meeting with all the church leaders to say, we want to come and stand with you and bless you. But when it comes to Derby, we're here. And God wants you to have a, take up and feel a responsibility for the gospel in the city. Not on your own, but with every other church as well. But this is what we're doing in New Frontiers. We're saying we've got to that age of responsibility. We're not just bit part players anymore. We're going to take responsibility for salvation in this nation. 
And God wants us to take responsibility. He wants you to pick up that responsibility for salvation of people in Derby. So the gospel is a debt. That's the first thing. How can you become confident in the gospel? It's by actually understanding your relationship to the gospel. It's not just something that's blessed you. It's something that has made you a debtor to the world. You, as far as God is concerned, are the prime person who he is, who he is using in the salvation of your family, your friends, the people that you know. Now, the second point is going to help you with that. <laughs> because that can seem to be a very heavy and burdensome thing. But unless we actually are willing to take hold of that and say, yeah, okay, God, I'm with you. I feel this debt. I feel this, this burden of responsibility. Woe to me if my friends don't hear about Jesus. My second point is this. The gospel is God's power to salvation. The gospel is God's power to salvation. What, the second point I want to make about Paul, the gospel and Rome, which I want to uh, apply to Jubilee Church here in Derby, is this, is that Paul was fully aware that the message entrusted to him was powerful. The gospel was powerful. It was God's message. It was God's gospel. It's God's power to save all those who heard and believed. And we need to be as clear on this as Paul was. You see, the problem was with me coming here and sort of saying, you've got a debt, you've got a burden, you've got an obligation. And you think, ah. But the flip side of that, the second point is this. The gospel is powerful. It's not that I'm giving you a debt and a burden and an obligation that is with a weak thing that is, is going to cause you to struggle and to have difficulty because you haven't got the equipment and the tools for the job. I'm giving you a debt and an obligation to actually speak to people about something that is powerful, that works. <laughs> the gospel is effective. It works. It's God's power for salvation. There's no point with starting with that point because I could, you could be thinking, yeah, it's God's power for salvation and it's Graham's job to preach it or it's the evangelist's job to do it. No, it's all of our job. It's all of our obligation. We're all in debt, but actually we've all got this wonderful, powerful thing. And it doesn't matter, matter whether you're an evangelist like me, a preacher like Graham or an ordinary person, inverted commas, None of us are ordinary, we're all super normal actually. But if you just see yourself as an ordinary person, it doesn't matter. Because it's not my message or Graham's message or even your message. It's God's message. And God's message is powerful. It's powerful to save. Notice how Paul puts it. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Interesting that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That phrase was written by um, the Apostle Paul, by the way, not Martin Smith of Delirious. Okay, Paul wrote it first. Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why did he put it like that? It's quite interesting. Um, when you read the commentators, some, some commentators, they have this debate about whether Paul was ashamed or he wasn't ashamed. What did he mean by saying, I'm not ashamed? And um, actually, one of the commentators I was reading He's talking about um, that phrase, I am not ashamed of the gospel, being an example of litotes, 
L-I-T-O-T-E-S. I usually have my wife here with me and she can tell you what that is. It's a litotes is a sort of like expression. It's sort of like a phrase. It's, it sounds like a, um, a rabid disease, doesn't it? Lito- or an African river or something or other. But litotes, it's when you use an understatement for rhetorical effect. Okay, so you, you, you underplay something when you're speaking about it for rhetorical effect, especially, so the dictionary says, the use of a negative in place of a positive. So, for instance, you might hear someone say, uh, I am not amused. And what it really means is they're boiling angry. <laughs> you know, I am not amused. Um, or, you know, in the period dramas, all the Jane Austen stuff, and you, uh, you see on the telly and whatever, and, and someone will say, she was not a little upset. You know, she was not a little upset. It means that she really was upset. So that is an example of litotes. It's understating something, use a negative, actually, when you're really emphasising a positive, perhaps in a polite way. So one com- t- commentator, looking at this, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, clearly totally unable to contemplate uh, anybody thinking that this great apostle Paul might possibly be ashamed of the gospel, actually translates that passage um, I am proud of the gospel. So if you read their, 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 their commentary, um, they would say that actually what it should say is, I am proud of the gospel. Um, not, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But actually, I've been sort of thinking about this. And, you know, why is it that Paul could not actually feel the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? I've been saying Paul actually was very much like us. We, in many respects, are very much like Paul. We might not have beetle brows and bandy heads and bold legs. Um, but actually, Paul was a man just like us. Okay? He was a human being. Might it not have been that Paul was tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel? I know I am. I'm sure you are at times. Um, Jesus himself, after all, warned his disciples um, of being ashamed of him, Mark 8, verse 38, which shows that he anticipated that they might be tempted to feel ashamed of Jesus. You know, even the very guys who lived and walked with Jesus, even after, even after, happened before, but after the day of Pentecost, even after they'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, hey guys, you'll feel this temptation to be ashamed of me. So if even they <laughs> would feel ashamed of him, might not Paul have felt ashamed of the gospel in the way that we can feel easily ashamed of the gospel? Paul wrote to Timothy, so do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. There's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless You've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And I think, without doubt, Paul knew what it felt like. After all, he told the Corinthians, when he went to the church in Corinth, he said, um, uh, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now again, you know, some commentators have said, oh, the trembling, he was full of the Holy Spirit. No, he was, well, he was, but he was frightened. (laughs) He came to them in fear. Um, Weakness. And he was trembling. You know, he was apprehensive about testifying about Jesus in the city of Corinth. You see, Paul knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. You see, because when the gospel is preached, 
when it's preached properly, it undermines uh, self-righteousness. It undermines uh, a person's self-respect. It challenges their focus on themselves. It challenges their lifestyle. It challenges self-indulgence. When the gospel is faithfully preached, it arouses opposition. It arouses contempt. It arouses ridicule and laughter. People don't like it. True preaching of the gospel causes offence. If we don't cause offence, actually, if we don't ever come across offence, then I would question whether we're really preaching the true gospel. Because the gospel is offensive to men in their sinful state. I found the gospel offensive. That's why for 34 years I ignored it. I was not a Christian for 34 years. Because I didn't like being told that I was a sinner. I didn't like being told that I was just proud and arrogant. I didn't like being told that I couldn't live my own life and make up how, how I did things. I didn't like being told that there, were, there was a book which I saw as a set of rules that I ought to follow. I didn't like it. And I was uh, opposed to it. And I was actually uh, not just not a Christian. I was a vigorous and violent atheist in my arguments towards Christians. And I would go about baiting them and arguing with them. The gospel causes offence if it's preached properly. The gospel tells me that I'm lost. The gospel tells me that I'm condemned without a saviour. The gospel tells me that I haven't got hope if I don't believe in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells me I can never be forgiven. I can never do anything to sort out my life. The gospel tells me that and people don't like to be told such things. They don't like it. You may be here today and you may not like what you're hearing but I want to tell you this is the gospel. That without Jesus Christ, that there is no hope of forgiveness. Without believing that he actually, on the cross, died so that you don't have to, there is no hope for you. Unless you see that Jesus, on the cross, was separated from God so that you don't have to be, so that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't see that at that point, he was separated from God only because... You should have been separated and he loved you so much that he was prepared to be separated from his father so that you don't have to be anymore. Unless you believe that and get to grips with that and accept that as the truth for your life, then the Bible says that you are lost and you have not got a hope in eternal life. You see, and the gospel causes offence. If I'm offending you this morning, no, I don't apologise actually because it's the gospel. I'd love to speak to you more about it when we finish in a few moments. But the point is, the gospel causes offence. And Paul, as a preacher of the gospel, you've got to remember, he'd been assaulted, he'd been attacked by mobs, he'd been thrown out of cities, he'd been imprisoned, he'd received a flogging on more than one occasion, he'd been shipwrecked, suffered ships that are totally foreign to any of us. Why? Because he kept on going, he kept on preaching the gospel. And Paul faced all these things. And we get worried because our friends might not like it. (laughs) Think about what happened to Paul. And we get so concerned that our friends might not like it. Or they might withdraw their friendship. They might not want to hang out with us anymore. Paul faced shipwrecks. He faced hardships. Um... And he, I'm sure, was tempted not to preach this gospel that would cause offence to people.
but he overcame the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel in the same way that we can overcome that temptation as well by remembering that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God. It is effective and it works. Yes, some will be offended. Yes, some will be upset. Yes, some will not understand. Yes, some may withdraw from you a little bit. But because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, some will be won by it. The gospel is effective. It is God's power. And we can only overcome this temptation to withdraw and back off by realising it's God's power for salvation. The very same message that is foolishness to some is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. You see, Paul knew the gospel was good news. How did he know it was good news? He knew it was good news because it had worked for him. (laughs) It had saved him. And, And Paul described himself as a Jew above all Jews. He was religious above all religious people. He was as far away from God, a persecutor of Christians as anybody was. And yet the gospel on the road to Damascus, the good news, the encounter with Jesus, knocked him to the floor and he was gloriously and wonderfully saved. And Paul knew that if it had saved him, it could save anybody. Because only the power of God could have saved Paul. And if the power of God could save Paul, then it could save anybody. But it's exactly the same for us. I was miles away from God. I was a persecutor of Christians. Not that I went around doing what Paul did, flogging them and throwing them into prison. Prison, you're not allowed to do that in this country these days. But I would aggressively, verbally attack Christians. But God saved me. God wonderfully and gloriously saved me. And I know if he can save me, he can save anybody. <laughs> and really, you know how far away from God you were. You know how desperate you were not to be a Christian. You know, you know how disinterested you were. You know how um, hostile you were. You know how little you actually knew about it. And yet, the gospel has saved you. And if it can save people like you, with respect, it can save anybody. <laughs> Looking around. Look around at each other. Come on, look at each other, church. I mean, you know. Oh, I'm, I'm being so offensive this morning. I may as well go for it. A pretty motley crew, okay? You know, be honest, come on. Yet the gospel has saved us and turned us into these wonderful treasure troves of this glorious thing. If the gospel can save people like us, it can save anybody. Let's be honest. It can and it will. We know that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know that God has forgiven your sins. You know that he's made you a child of God. You know that he's put his Holy Spirit in you. You know that he's begun to transform you and change your life. You know that you're experiencing the blessing of being part of the family of God, the church here on earth. All of that is by the power of God. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's the power of God for salvation. And because you have experienced that and you know that, it gives us confidence that God can do the same thing with other people, with your family members, with your friends, with your work colleagues. If the gospel is the power of God for salvation for us, which it is, it can be and will be the power of God for salvation of those that we share it with. Yes, some will take offence, but many, many will be served. It works for us, it works for 
other people. And right throughout the New Testament, if you follow the story of Paul, you see that wherever he preached the gospel, yes, it aroused opposition, but always people were saved. When Paul went to Corinth, in the same place where it says he went with fear and trembling, as we saw earlier, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and foolish words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. It says in Acts 18, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. It was actually the synagogue ruler. <laughs> you know, the one who was supposed to be opposed to these new Christians. These breakaway renegade sect. It was the synagogue ruler. He was saved and all his household. And it says many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. It's the same elsewhere. When Peter, uh, in, in Acts chapter 10, when he's speaking to the Gentiles, Cornelius, while Peter was speaking, the gospel, the wonderful gospel, while he's preaching the gospel, says the Holy Spirit came and, and poured the, himself into their hearts and they believed and they were baptised. Wherever the gospel is preached in the New Testament, people are saved. The day of Pentecost, the first time Peter stands up and preached the gospel, it says 3,000 as Graham was alluding earlier, where it says this is one of the places where in the New Testament it talks about people being saved and added. 3,000 were saved and added. And it's the same in our day. Hundreds and hundreds of people are being saved. I've got the privilege of uh, being part of a, a, a team of uh, evangelists work with uh, Lex Lozides out of South Africa. And um, some years ago now, we started doing this thing called Front Edge, whereby we, we visit a, a sphere, a region of churches. We do a conference on the Saturday and then sometimes uh, four or five of us go to different churches. Sometimes it can be 25 of us go to different churches. In some instances, even more than that, go to churches, preach the gospel, pray for the sick. Since we started doing that about five years ago, we've seen 1,475 people, I think it is, make first-time public responses to Jesus Christ. This is in our churches mainly in the United Kingdom, okay? It's not Africa, okay? This is literally a thousand plus hundreds of people making responses to the gospel in our churches on Sunday mornings. Why? Not because we're great evangelists, but because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Two weeks ago, uh, I had the pleasure of preaching in the New Frontiers Church in Dorchester, right down in the southwest of England, and the Dorchester Family Church, part of the New Frontiers family of churches. We had a great Sunday there, preached the gospel, gave people an opportunity to walk to the front. Many of us now have got beyond this sort of keep your eyes closed and put your little hand up if you want to get saved. No, we give people a clear opportunity to come to the front and make a public response to the gospel. Seven people did so. Seven people. There were 12 guests. Uh, I was reliably told 12 guests at the meeting, seven of those guests stood up, left their seats, came to the front, prayed audibly, out loud, a prayer of commitment to Jesus Christ. Every one of them so far is going on well in the Lord. One of those guys, when I gave the opportunity to respond to the gospel, he shot up out of the seat, almost before I'd finished saying, I thought, oh dear, I've offended him <laughs> because the gospel causes offence. I thought he's going for the back door. He didn't. He grabbed hold of his wife's hands and came Walking very quickly. He didn't run, okay, he didn't run, but he walked very quickly to the front to give his life to Jesus. His wife was crying, hanging on his shoulder. I found out afterwards she had been praying for him for 16 years. 
16 years. They'd only recently started coming to this New Frontiers church, previously been involved in smaller churches. She'd been going. He was not a Christian. 16 years she'd been praying faithfully for him. And that morning, he heard the gospel clearly preached. He gave his life to Jesus. She was crying. He was crying. I was hopeless. Um, The gospel. There was an 84-year-old man who came to the front um, on his walking stick saying, I want this. And he said to me, I haven't got long left, but I want this. Gave his life to Jesus. There was another lady further over this way who, won't go into details, loads of problems in her life. Um, Abuse, alcoholism, uh, separation from her husband, whatever. Loads of stuff. But a clear response to the gospel. Now she's got Jesus in her life to help her with those things. The gospel is God's power to save. Now, I'm giving you examples from my world. I have the privilege and joy of being able to preach the gospel. But it's exactly the same for you in your world. It's not about standing up here and preaching. It's just about being able to say to people what Jesus has done in your life and what it means to you to know that the gospel has saved you. The gospel works. It works. It's God's power for salvation. We need to uh, finish. Um, Just want to pray for us that you as a church here in Derby start to really feel this responsibility for the gospel. That you understand it as a, a, a debt and an obligation. Not that it's this heavy burden that you can't get rid of, but something that fuels you and drives you. The gospel is not something that has just come to you for your own personal salvation, your own personal delight and joy. It is all of that, but it's for people out there as well. It's for your friends. And actually, you can have every confidence when you do that, when you share the gospel, that it's God's power for salvation and you will see fruit. Yes, it may cause offence, but that obligation, that desire to discharge this wonderful gift of treasure that Jesus has given you keeps you going forward. Can we stand? And let's just pray. I just want to pray for you as, a, as, as individuals, but more so, I think, just corporately uh, as uh, a church. I just want to uh, pray uh, for you as a church. Father, I want to pray for my dear brothers and sisters here in Derby. Father, I pray for each one. Father, that they would rejoice and celebrate today in their salvation, that the joy of salvation would be rich in each and every heart uh, today. But Father, I pray also for this sense of obligation, this sense of uh, a debt, a wonderful debt um, to be discharged to people in this city, people that uh, they know and people who are yet strangers. Lord, I pray for a deposit of that, that, that wonderful treasure, to discharge that treasure. I pray for that to be deposited in Jubilee Church Derby today, that the gospel would ring out from these people, that the gospel would ring out in this city. 
that many people would be saved, that these seats week by week would be filled with people coming to find out about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, this, that the each and every church in this city would be a gospel-preaching church, that many, many people in this city would be saved, that everyone in this city would hear the gospel. Father, that it would become hard to go to hell from this city, Lord. Not easy, Lord, because people have not heard the gospel, but hard to go to hell from this place because the gospel is preached and the gospel resounds out from your people. Holy Spirit, I pray for this in Jesus' name. I pray for faith. I pray for confidence. I pray for a new level of boldness and skill to be able to speak about you. And I pray for fruit. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.